Well, this morning we're going to continue in our summer series through a few selected psalms. And this morning, I'm excited because we're going to look at probably the most well-known psalm uh, of all 150 psalms. Maybe the most well-known passage in all of the Bible. And, And I mean, even if you've never been to church and this is your first time, you've probably heard this psalm read probably at a funeral, and it's Psalm 23. So so let me invite your attention to Psalm 23 this morning. What I want to do is I just want to read it for us this morning. I want to pray for us. And then, of course, we'll go back and walk through it together as we typically do. This is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Again, this is the most famous psalm of the lot, and for good reason, right? I mean, it just brings this beautiful message wrapped in beautiful imagery. In fact, this is what Charles Spurgeon, the great British uh, theologian and, and pastor, wrote about this psalm. This is what he said. He said, it's been said that what the nightingale is among birds, that is this divine ode among the psalms. For it's sung sweetly in the ear of many a mourner in the night of weeping, And it's bidden him hope for a morning of joy. He says, I'll venture to compare it also uh, to the lark, which sings as it mounts and mounts as it sings until it's out of sight. And even then it's not out of hearing. He says, these are celestial notes, more fitted for the eternal mansions than for these dwelling places below the clouds. Oh, that we may enter into the spirit of this psalm as we read it. And then we shall experience the days of heaven upon the earth. So this morning, we're going to spend some time just listening to these celestial notes together. And my hope is that if you are today in a night of weeping, that you can hear this psalm, as Spurgeon says, bid you hope for a morning of joy today. So let's pray. Let's pray. Father, as we approach you this morning through your word, Father, we come to a passage that Um, Though we might have incredible familiarity with, Lord, we're still desperate to need it this morning. Father, even though we might have memorized this as a kid, though we may have read read it a thousand times, Lord, we need to hear it one more time. Father, we need it because perhaps many this morning are filled with anxiety. Many are paralyzed by dread and fear. Many might be overwhelmed by stress. Many overcome with sorrow, many deluged by the uncertainty of tomorrow. And Father, if some aren't in that place right now, Lord, we know it's likely that they will be at some point in the future soon. So Father, would you replace anxiety with peace today? Would you please replace fear with courage and stress with renewal and sorrow with comfort and uncertainty with confidence? And so Lord, we ask, would you bless us this morning by helping us set our eyes and hearts one more time on you, our good shepherd, because we know that's what our hearts need most today. 
And Father, we pray, would you be glorified through it all as your son's lifted up. We pray it in all in his name. Amen. Well, amen. Looking again at the psalm, we really can summarize the main idea of Psalm 23 by the very first phrase. That's why it's the very first phrase. Psalm 23, one again, David writes, the Lord is my shepherd. And again, the entire psalm hangs on this one phrase because what David does here at the outset is he identifies two amazing truths about God. Those truths being that God is both transcendent and that God is imminent. And this is important, I think, because one of the reasons it's tempting to love Psalm 23 so much, and not just this Psalm, but so many other passages in scripture, is because we love what it says about us, right? Like we love to hear about the good gifts that God gives his sheep, you and me. And to be clear, he does give good gifts. I mean, that's, that is what David is declaring here, what this Psalm describes really are blessings of the sheep and God's flock. But grasp this morning that this psalm is not ultimately about the sheep. No, this psalm is first and foremost about the shepherd. And what David wants to do, and he's calling his own heart to do, and he's calling all of us to do, is to grasp this vision of the shepherd. And as we grasp this vision of the shepherd, we find comfort as the sheep. Okay, and so again, David speaks to these twin truths that God is transcendent. What, what we mean by that is that God is uh, above his creation, that he's completely different, that he's separate from, that he's independent of nature. He's separate from and independent of humanity, all of the rest of creation. God is superior to it in every way possible. And the way David brings this up in this first phrase is in the name he uses to identify God here. In fact, in most English translations that we have today, maybe it's probably true in the version you have, that the name Lord there in Psalm 23.1 is in all capital letters or small capital letters. And what translators have done now for, for quite some time is to use that kind of typeset so that we might identify throughout the Old Testament when the Hebrew name Yahweh is used rather than just kind of a general name God in other places. And, and Yahweh, why it's important for us to grasp that, is really the personal name of God. It's the personal name. We see this actually in connection to Exodus 3, when if you remember the scene in Israel's history when Moses climbs Mount Sinai uh, to meet with God before he gets the Ten Commandments and, and the law. And, and God's in the burning bush. And in Exodus 3, verse 13, we, we read this. It says, Moses said to God, if, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, well, what's his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Again, this is the connection to the, the title Yahweh. God says, tell them Yahweh has sent you. The one who is and the one who will be has sent you. Again, it's the personal name to God. And it's personal to him only because, again, it highlights his transcendence. No, it sets him apart from everyone else. No one else can claim this name because no one else is the unchangeable, eternal, majestic, creator, God of glory. 
In fact, the Jewish people believed, and many still do, that, that it was such a sacred name that they wouldn't even dare to say it out loud. And God says, tell them, Yahweh sent me, or sent you. And God would later say through his prophet Isaiah, this is Isaiah 42, verse 8. He says, I am the Lord, or I am Yahweh. That's my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And so here in Psalm 23, David starts out by writing, you, you know, Yahweh, the one who's unlike anyone else, the God of our fathers who's done so much for us, the one who's transcended over all creation, that being, he's the one I'm writing about right now, right? But then in the very same breath, in the same sentence, David connects God's transcendence, what we call God's eminence. In other words, what we mean by that is that even though God is above and unlike his creation, God is still active and he's still present within his creation. That being that Yahweh who's, who's, uh, who stands above all, who, he, he's not distant, he's not apathetic, he's not inactive. No, in fact, the way David describes him here is, is he acts like a shepherd for his people. Right? And, and we understand that the title of shepherd, it wasn't a highly respectable title. Like it's not something you're proud of, right? Shepherds were not upper class elites in the ancient world. And yet David says, you know, that transcendent God who, who, who is eternal and unlike anyone else, he's not ashamed to shepherd his people. That even though God is infinitely holy and majestic and glorious, worthy of ending, unending worship, God willingly takes the role of shepherd to care for his sheep. And notice, by the way, David doesn't say the Lord is a shepherd. Like he's one good option for us to choose from, from another of a bunch of other good shepherds. He doesn't even say that the Lord is our shepherd, right? Like that, that plural pronoun, we, is not found in Psalm 23. It's always first and second personal pronouns. You and me, right? He doesn't even say that the Lord is the shepherd. No, David, in this moment of personal worship, He's saying, no, the Lord is, is my shepherd. In fact, Spurgeon again, this is what he wrote about that phrase. He says, the sweetest word of the whole, and talking about all of Psalm 23, the sweetest word is that monosyllable, my. Because he does not say the Lord is the shepherd of the world at large and leads forth the multitude as his flock, but the Lord is my shepherd. Spurgeon says, if he be a shepherd to no one else, he's a shepherd to me. He cares for me and he watches over me and he preserves me. Again, we love Psalm 23 because of the picture it paints. But I mean, probably the most beautiful word there is my. The Lord is my shepherd. Uh, when, when you become a parent, and if you're a parent, you completely understand this. When you become a parent for the first time, you have your first child, uh, it completely changes your life, right? Uh, to put it mildly. And I should probably add, it changes for the good um, most of the time. It changes your life because you and your spouse, you now have, you now have this little life that you're responsible for. I remember uh, the strangest feeling, probably many of you felt the same thing, uh, when it was time to leave the hospital with, with this new child, this new baby, this just overwhelming feeling of responsibility. Like, I am not up for this. Are you kidding me? We got married when I was really young. Uh, I, we had our first child. I was 22. Uh, I didn't know what I was doing. I still really don't know what I'm doing. Um, 
But I remember um, our, our oldest daughter, she had kind of a rough start uh, there at the beginning. She had to spend a few days in the NICU. And, and so for a few days, I mean, she just had round-the-clock care from all these trained and experienced team uh, of nurses and doctors. They knew what they were doing. They were taking care of her. Of course, we were a little nervous. We were praying. But we knew she was in good hands. And by God's grace and their skill, thankfully, she improved. And, and it was time for us to leave to take her with us and take us her home. And it was just this weird feeling because after all of that, it was just kind of like, well, here you go. And so we took this little body and put her in this car seat that seemed way too big for her and put her in the car and starts to drive home. And, and again, it was just this overwhelming feeling like, what? who am I to do this? I can't do this. And listen, I'm not a very defensive driver. I can be a little aggressive sometimes. But I remember that drive home, like I drove, like I had 50 dozen eggs just laying in the back of my car. And I, like I had my hands at 10 and 2. I was well under the speed limit. I was getting frustrated by everybody else because they, they, they were driving way too fast and way too close to my car. I mean, I just felt overwhelmed that I have to care for this little person. And if you have a kid, you know what I'm talking about. But then if you have multiple kids, you also know that when you have your first, he or she gets all of the attention, right? Like she gets all the pictures. She gets all the new toys. She gets all the new clothes. She gets the best food. I mean, again, she gets all of your attention. But then you have a second kid. Things change a little bit, don't they? You can't give that firstborn all the attention. Why? Because there's another one. And then maybe you have more. And now we have four kids. And as our family has grown, what it just keeps showing me over and over again is just, it's just grown harder for me to give my attention to each one as much as they need and deserve. Because I'm just one inadequate uh, um, bozo and, and have four really precious kids. And, and I just can't give them everything that they need. But you understand, that's not a problem with God, right? Like if you've put your faith in Christ and you've been brought into the flock of God, you stand alongside millions and millions of others within the people of God, but understand you're not lost in the flock, right? Like you're not one of the millions of God's people who call on Christ as their savior, just begging for his attention hoping that he's going to have some extra time uh, between all of these massive um, tragedies and, and crisis that's going on in the world, just hoping he's going to have a little extra time for you. you know, the Lord, Yahweh, the creator, the sustainer of all things, the one who is unlike any other, all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign and good, David says, he's your shepherd. And you're never out of his sight. You're never out of his attention. He knows everything that you need. And as amazing as the rest of this psalm is, all of it hangs on that first statement, doesn't it? That the Lord, Yahweh, the transcendent God, would take on the role of shepherd for little old me and you. And it's because of this transcendence, it's because of who he is, he, he really can provide all that this passage goes on to ascribe to him. We're going to walk through these fairly quickly. Uh, again, he says uh, that the Lord is my shepherd, verse one, I shall not want. What does God do? He, he, he offers us provision. Shall not want. David means here that he will not lack. Not that he will not desire. He won't lack. The Lord provides for our needs and he knows our needs. 
Verse two and three, he, the Lord makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What does he do? He, he provides for us rest and renewal. Now, now I know in, in our age of constant motion and constant connectivity, our constant pressure for the next thing or the next project or the next experience, um, if you're like me, it's probably this verse that strikes the greatest chord for me. Because I don't know how many times I think, man, that sounds nice. But I don't think that I can have that right now. I mean, we're just so busy. And we feel like we should be busy. And even if not, I mean, we just can't help but be busy. And we're just so busy that we don't know where to turn for rest. We don't know when to find time for rest. And, and, and to be clear, the Bible does prescribe for us Sabbath rest. It's good to take time off uh, to, for physical and mental rest each week. It's good for us to go on vacation when possible to unplug. That's a good rhythm to build into our lives. The Lord knows that we need that. But I think this offers even a greater vision for the rest that God offers us. Here's what I mean by that, because it's tempting to think, yeah, that sounds awesome. That would really be nice for me, but there's no way that I can experience that right now. Like my to-do list is a mile long. My inbox is overflowing. I can't stop for a moment, much less lie down in green pastures. Or, you know, that sounds really nice, but I'm out of vacation days. I don't have the funds to travel. Uh, I, I don't have the time to lie down in green pastures or, or you know, you can replace that phrase with whatever you think of when you think of that, escaping to the Adirondacks or, or, or reading a book on a sandy beach. As great as those experiences are, and we should pursue those, they're good for us. Again, I think this casts a greater vision for rest. One pastor describes it as rest in motion. Rest in motion. In other words, yeah, there's a lot to do. There's a lot, especially if you have a family, especially if you have a demanding job. And while it's good for us to find time to, to physically rest, to mentally rest, to do that regularly, I mean, our shepherd is so good to us. Our shepherd is so gracious to us. And he's so gentle with us that even in the midst of the craziness, our souls can find rest in him. And the reason is because our acceptance into the flock doesn't depend on what we accomplish in our careers that our relationship to the shepherd doesn't depend on how well we parent our children. If we can get them to all of the games and to all of the practices, that our standing in the flock is not based on how much we can check off our to-do list each week. And so because that's true, you really can find rest in the middle of all of the mounting pressures of every single day. And it's done by drawing near to the shepherd time and time again. Saying it's okay if you don't get it all done. It's okay if you need to take a nap. It's okay to take some time off. And even if you can, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to make you lie down and make you rest and assure you I'm in control even in the craziness. So he says, the Lord provides for us rest. And we'll go on to verse four. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for you're with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The Lord as shepherd offers us protection. We know this very well. This is why this is read so many times. In someone's last moments of life, we're at a funeral service. The imagery here is the shepherd who, who walks with us, walks with his flock with rod and staff in hand. And we understand shepherds use their staff, right, to, to ward off predators. 
all the, those that might be attacking the sheep. But we understand that they're also used to correct and guide the sheep who might be wandering. Right? So, so just briefly catch here, that comfort is found in the Lord protecting us from external threats, from, from those out there who might want to harm us. But, but it's good for us to pause and understand too that, that we actually get comfort that the Lord will protect us from ourselves as well. He does that through discipline. And as hard as that might be when he disciplines us, it's good. Why? It's good for us. It should comfort us to know. Why? That God actually cares about the state of my soul. God actually cares about the way that I walk in my life. And so he comes and he comforts me with his correction and his protection. In verse 5, the, the imagery, imagery kind of shifts from the Lord as shepherd to the Lord as a generous host. And of course, as a generous host, that brings with it new imagery. Again, verse 5, you, you, Lord, Yahweh, shepherd, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Carries this idea of vindication. The Lord vindicates me. The picture could either be kind of like this king who, who provides a feast after the battle on the battlefield in the midst of the dead bodies of the enemy. Or it could also offer us just this picture that, that even though we're pursued, that even though we're attacked or, or we're slandered or we're surrounded by the enemy, they really can do nothing to block or hinder the bountiful feast that the Lord, our host, presents to us. Right? You understand, like the Bible says that all those who um, desire to live a godly life in Christ will suffer persecution. It's just a fact. It's just part of living as a Christian in this age. There's no getting around it. It shouldn't surprise us, but it shouldn't also defeat us. Because in essence, what David is saying, man, let them come. Even in the presence of my enemies, let them say what they want. Let them do what they want. I mean, even if I'm overwhelmed by that presence of enemies, I'm not going to fear. Why? Because I'm also in the presence of a table. That this table is, uh, that the Lord has prepared for me. And, and so while the battle rages, I mean, we just pull up a chair and, and we feast because the Lord's that good. And this feast that he prepares for us satisfies all the cravings of our heart and our souls. Again, verse five, he says, you anoint my head with oil and, and my cup overflows. What does he do? He offers us satisfaction. The Lord's not holding anything back from you today. Regardless of how it might feel, God has in Christ prepared a feast for you and me. There's no need to warm up the leftovers of yesterday's feast. Like you understand there's, there's new mercies for you every single day, new grace every single day lavished on us in Christ. And because all of that's true, David comes to this incredible conclusion. Verse six, he gives us confident hope. Listen to it again. He says, surely, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That word follow there actually means to pursue. That the Lord, your shepherd, chases you, as it were, with his goodness and mercy. Notice, not chases you with judgment and wrath. He chases you with goodness and mercy. That one pastor said, this is like the Old Testament way of saying Romans 8, 1. That there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, the, the shepherd comes to us today and every day and really all for eternity with this mercy and goodness. And he's welcoming you into his home. That is his temple, that place where he dwells. And, and notice the, the imagery here that we've been gr granted access, but, but not like a visitor. We don't get like a day pass or, or a two-day pass. Uh, we're not just passing through. David says, no, that's, that's where I'm going to live. 
I'm going to dwell there with the Lord forever. So he says, the Lord, Yahweh is our shepherd. Listen to all of that he provides for us. Not just today, but for all eternity. And again, David says, these are the celestial notes. Yahweh brings provision and rest and guidance, protection, vindication, satisfaction, hope, and so much more for his sheep. Now, even though we love this passage, and we do, because it's truth, it's good, the challenge we face, I think, time and time again, is not loving this passage. We love it. It's believing this passage. Right? And the way we know that to be true is that so many times in our life, we don't seem or feel that we're experiencing the Lord in these ways. Like we want that to be true, but sometimes it doesn't feel that way. And so what that might mean is that we have been looking elsewhere for other shepherds. Right? Like we might look to some social media influencer, some best-selling author, political pundits, maybe a popular podcast host or someone else who in our minds really can offer all of these things that we desire so much, whether that's guidance or wisdom or peace, protection. Or more often than not, what happens is, is we try to be our own shepherds, don't we? Try to be our own shepherds. And so what happens is with our misguided hearts, we end up actually rewriting this beautiful psalm into something far less comforting. In fact, there's a a guy named David Pallison. Uh, He was a Christian author and counselor, and and he wrote something like this. He called it the anti-Psalm 23. In other words, he wrote what what he thought the opposite of David's words might be in Psalm 23 and what that might look like in our lives. We try to shepherd ourselves, and and this is what he wrote. This is anti-Psalm 23. I am on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated. I'm often disappointed. It's a jungle and I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert and I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down down some dark paths. And yet still I insist. I want to do what I want, when I want, and how I want. But life's confusing. Why don't these things ever really work out? I'm haunted by emptiness and futility, shadows of death. I fear the big hurt and final loss. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road, but I'd rather not think about that. I spend my life protecting myself. Bad things really can happen and I'll find no lasting comfort. I'm alone, facing everything that could hurt me. Are my friends really friends? Other people use me for their own ends. I can't really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one is really for me except me. Yet I know I'm so much all about me, sometimes it's sickening. I belong to no one except myself. My cup is never quite full enough. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Will I just be obliterated into nothingness? Will I be alone forever? Homeless, free falling into void. Sartre said, hell is other people. And I'll have to add, hell is also myself. It's a living death. And then I die. Like, like maybe you can relate to some of the lines in the anti-Psalm 23. Because what happens is instead of turning to the Lord, what we do is we grab the shepherd's staff ourselves and we want to shepherd ourselves. Whether that's through our own abilities, our own efforts, our own possessions, our own careers, our own wisdom. And the good question for us is like, why do we do that? When the Lord's there, why would I shepherd my, why would I want that? 
Well, at the core is unbelief. See, at times we don't believe that the Lord actually cares. Or at times we believe that, or don't believe that he's actually able to walk us through difficult seasons. Or we don't believe that, that what we're walking through right now can be reconciled in any way with the words of this psalm. And so we might say, well, that's, that isn't true of my life right now. And so this must not be true at all. The Lord must not be a good shepherd. And so I'm going to look elsewhere. And so if that's you this morning, and it's all of us at some time, we just need a fresh reminder again that yes, the Lord is our shepherd, but also the gospel is our proof. Again, the Lord's our shepherd, the gospel is our proof. You understand that while we're familiar with this, this text, Psalm 23, as kind of the standalone beautiful passage that brings encouragement through life's trials and comfort as we face death, what I want to make sure that we don't miss this morning is that Psalm 23 tells an even bigger story, a much bigger story. Like we should never read this psalm and, and hear the beautiful language that it gives with all, without also hearing what, what some theologians call echoes of the Exodus. Here's what we mean by that. The Exodus in the Old Testament is that event in Israel's history where, where God redeems Israel from slavery in Egypt, leads them through the promised land uh, or through the wilderness to the promised land. And we have to understand that that major event in Israel's history is the background to Psalm 23. It's this event that David leans on when he looks at his own experience. In other words, it's not just true for me, but it's true for Israel. In fact, notice what the, the similar language in the Old Testament that described God's activity in the Exodus as he shepherds Israel through the wilderness. This is Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 7. Moses says to Israel, For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows going through this great wilderness, these 40 years the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. What he said, the Lord's your shepherd, you haven't wanted. You haven't lacked a thing. Numbers 10, verse 33 says, So they set out from the mount of the Lord, uh, Israel leaving Mount Sinai, three days journey, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them three days journey to seek out a resting place for them. The phrase resting place is important because in Psalm 23, uh, in our translation, that it says that we're led by still waters, literally that's translated as waters of a resting place. God was bringing his people from slavery to a place of rest. Exodus 15, verse 13, one other example. He says, you've led in your steadfast love the people whom you've redeemed. You've guided them by your strength to your holy abode. What's he saying? We're going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why? Because you've led us there. So understand that in Israel's history, God shepherded his people to the promised land. And what happens is God calls other people to then lead the people of Israel as kind of like an under shepherd to the good shepherd. But the problem was that those shepherds ended up not being faithful ones, but actually unfaithful. And instead of leading Israel into faithful worship of Yahweh, they often led them into idolatry. And so later on in the Old Testament, follow me here, Ezekiel 34, God comes to them. And he calls him out. He says, you haven't shepherded my people well. In fact, you've, you've, you've uh, oppressed them. You've led them to idolatry. And so what he does, he says, um, not only am I calling you out, but I'm going to make a promise now to my people. Uh, I'm just going to shepherd the flock of God myself. And so as we look forward in redemptive history, you move forward a little bit in the Bible, we see the Lord make good on his promise when, when the Lord takes on flesh and becomes our good shepherd in the person and work of Jesus. In fact, John chapter 10, these are the words of Jesus. Uh, John records for us, verse seven. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I'm the door of the sheep. 
All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. But just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there'll be one flock and one shepherd. So God says, you know what? I'm going to shepherd my people, myself. And he takes on flesh. And through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus becomes the good shepherd who leads his people in a new exodus to a better promised land. So as much as we love Psalm 23, understand that Jesus is the good shepherd of Psalm 23. That Jesus is the good shepherd who provides life and life in abundance. That Jesus is the good shepherd who is himself living waters. That Jesus is the good shepherd who, who walked the paths of righteousness on our behalf and calls us to follow him now in them. That Jesus is the good shepherd who, who walked through the valley of the shadow of death for us. And because of that, now he walks through the valley of the shadow of death with us. That Jesus is the good shepherd who's protected us from death by, by defeating death himself through his own death and subsequent resurrection. That Jesus is the good shepherd who will one day prepare a feast for his bride as we see in Revelation when he comes again and he puts an end to our enemies and he welcomes us to dwell in his presence for all eternity. Again, Jesus is the good shepherd of Psalm 23. So so if you've ever had a hard time believing that the Lord is our shepherd, remember the gospels are proof. Jesus is that good shepherd you need, that we crave, that we can find. And so as we wrap up Psalm 23, we really ought to reflect and ask ourselves, well, first of all, what lesser shepherds am I trusting in? Am I looking to someone else? Am I looking to something else? Am I looking to myself to shepherd myself? Understand, if you put your faith in Jesus as part of the flock of God, draw near to your good shepherd because he's near to you. Like, are you overwhelmed today and desperately need comfort? Well, the reason Psalm 23 has been so beloved for generations is because we read those six verses and it's a pretty easy one to understand and we could summarize it pretty easily and we don't need uh, super spiritual or highbrow theological language. Instead, we might just read Psalm 23 and just summarize it by saying, the Lord's our shepherd, we're going to be okay. Right? The Lord's your shepherd, you're going to be okay. Now, there might still be pain, death until Jesus returns, but you're going to be okay. And for those this morning that don't have a faith in Jesus, say, yeah, that sounds awesome. Everything Jesus says, everything David says, I need that. I want that. Well, Jesus invites you to the flock today. He's the door to the sheep, he says. He's the door to the flock. But before you can call Jesus your shepherd, you have to first see yourself as a sheep by nature. Foolish, dependent, which is true of all of us, but you really can't have a part in the flock and you really can't call Jesus your own 
by turning to him this morning in faith and repentance, turning away from your sin, turning away from your self-righteousness and saying, I can't do this. And I turn to you as my shepherd. We invite you to do that today. What we want to do this morning is just take a moment of silent confession. So let me invite you with heads bowed and eyes closed. We do this each week to give uh, everyone just a few moments to pray, to spend some personal time with the Lord this morning, whether that's uh, spending time in confession, saying, Lord, I, I see that, that I've trusted in other shepherds. I've trusted in myself. And it's because I haven't believed you really are that good. Maybe you need to confess and ask for his forgiveness. Maybe spend time praising him and thanking him for all the ways that he guides and directs his flock. Just take a moment um, to yourself and then I'll pray for us and we'll continue. Father, we again thank you so much for your word. And God, uh, we're grateful that we could spend a few weeks just in the Psalms. And we just want to say thank you for the Psalms. Lord, that your word is filled with all kinds of writings. That you would include the Psalms that are just so transparent. That speak to our hearts and our emotions. Father, this morning as we spend time in Psalm 23, again, a passage that most of us are probably somewhat familiar with, if not very familiar. Lord, yet again, we're, we face the fact that we confess, we, we shop for other shepherds. Lord, many times we take up the role ourselves thinking that we can handle it better, that we're more qualified and more competent. Lord, would you forgive us? Father, we pray, Lord, as we read Psalm 23 and we think of the way that you provide for your people through your son, Jesus. Lord, would you give us a fresh vision this morning? Would you help us see just how good we have it in Jesus today? Lord, that we have you, the creator of all, as our shepherd. Lord, that through you, we have provision and rest and protection and vindication and, and so much more. Nothing in our life is lost on you. All of it under your watchful care and eye. And Lord, we have all of that because Jesus is our good shepherd. Lord, thank you that he would come and live a sinless life and be our substitutionary death. We could share in his victorious resurrection. So Father, once again, help us set our eyes and hearts on you today. Lord, would you bring us comfort through that? Father, this morning, as always, we pray if there's someone here that doesn't know you as Savior, that's not part of the flock, Father, would you draw them to yourself today? Help them see their need. Help them see your glory in the face of your son, Jesus, and give them faith that they could join the flock today. But Father, we love you. We're grateful for you.
We pray for your blessing as we continue in worship this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the book of Revelation gives us another beautiful image of Jesus as the shepherd of his people. In fact, speaking of those who have put their faith in Jesus, Revelation 7, John says, Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he'll guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes.